Again, we're in Mark 6. We're starting in verse 17 today. We're going to work through 29. It's going to be just a lot of work, okay? From 37 BC to 4 BC, a man ruled um, over Judea named Herod the Great. He was called the king of the Jews, though he really was what historians sometimes call a client king of Rome. Herod was very sleazy. Can I use that word? He was, he was shrewd and manipulative. And Herod saw Rome rising to power and kind of snuck himself up against Rome and, uh, and weaseled his way in to become Rome's kind of man position to govern on her behalf over Judea. He was a shrewd politician. He was very into his own glory. Imagine a politician being into himself. I don't know. Just so strange to think about. He, in his shrewdness, um, to kind of show himself as a good Roman, he built Caesarea, this kind of port city where he could interact with Rome and he built it with Roman architecture and style. One of his greatest accomplishments was building Caesarea. He, he also built Masada and, you know, remember Masada is where the Jews kind of had this standoff, um, much after Herod the Great, but it was very much a Masada in the South was a kind of a, a hiding place, a shelter, just in case things ever, some of you guys are preppers. Okay. And you're, you're prepping underground in case things ever go bad. Masada was kind of Herod's prep place walled on a mountain. Um, and so on one hand, he wanted to appease Rome. On the other hand, he builds a place to kind of protect himself from military attack in case things ever go south. And on the other hand, when you think of the second temple, remember when we studied Ezra, we talked about this a lot. After the first temple was destroyed by Babylon and the second temple was, was built again during the day of kind of Ezra, Nehemiah, the second temple was very much not Solomon's temple. Remember we read in the scripture that when the second temple was dedicated, the old men cried. Like they couldn't tell if people were crying or rejoicing, but there were old men crying because they had seen the glory of Solomon's temple. And the second temple was just not that. It was not glorious, bathed in gold. It was kind of unimpressive. But when we see Jesus, the second temple is impressive. And the question becomes, how does the temple go from being this kind of lackluster, put piece together project to being bathed in gold again? And the answer to that question would be Herod. So Herod, what we call beautified the temple, like for years, decades, Herod's pouring money into the temple to make it look great and glamorous again. So, so Herod's appeasing Rome by architecturing Roman style, building Roman cities. He's preparing for himself in Masada just to make sure no one can pin him down. And then he's going to kind of try to appease the Jews and, and, and look like a kind of a good Jew by beautifying the temple. History sometimes calls Herod a half Jew, um, but he's, he's certainly compromised. So imagine this. Let me just take you into scripture for a second. There's a method to my madness today, I promise. Matthew 2, 1 through 8. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that would be Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, 
he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had become tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in order that the region, uh, in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. So what do we have here? We have Herod hearing that Messiah is born, and so he says to the wise men, when you find him, come back to me. Come tell me about him. The wise men are, are called the wise men for a reason, because they're not dumb. And so they, 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 they don't come back to him. So then Matthew 2.16, we find that because Herod realizes that he's not going to ha- receive insight on, on who the child born was, he decides to murder all the baby boys two years old and younger. Now, notice the man beautified the temple. The man who spends like years, decades, and so much money bathing the temple in glory, to look like a good Jew who cares about God's glory and splendor. The moment he thinks that Messiah might challenge his authority, he says, through this very manipulative tactic, bring him back to me. I just want to, I want to worship him too. And then when he's duped, he says, you know what? Just murder all the young boys, two years old and younger. It looks, it looks like, like spirituality. But underneath it is what I would call the spirit of Antichrist. Now, let me yak at you for a second. We think oftentimes of Antichrist and we go straight to to Revelation 12 and 13 and we think about the end time Antichrist. And you need to know that there will be an end time Antichrist. That's plain scripture. scripture. Second Thessalonians calls him the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. But John, who wrote Revelation, told us in 1 John 2.18, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. 1 John 4.3 says the spirit of Antichrist, which is coming and is here. So John, who wrote Revelation and told us that there will be a final beast, a final Antichrist, tells us that there is a spirit of Antichrist operating in the earth in John's day and in our day. And the spirit of Antichrist, hear me, is not at least historically, so anti-church. I think the spirit of the Antichrist beautified the temple. I think Herod models Antichrist as much as anyone. By God, he's trying to kill him. Herod is so marked with the Antichrist spirit, but he wants to look religious. He's actually fascinated with religion externally. We'll find that he's fascinated with the prophets, but he wants nothing to do with the prophets speaking to or touching his own heart. The spirit of, I, I would say, if you just press me, I would say like Hitler operated in a spirit of antichrist. And I don't know if you know this, but like Hitler wanted to play with the church a little bit. And, and wanted to, to snuggle up next to the church. But before long, it was like, no, no crosses are allowed in your churches. And my flag has to be hung. And, and we need to recognize, church, that the spirit of antichrist, which will be fulfilled one day in a singular individual, 
is among us and the spirit of Antichrist is very compromised. It's, it's not blatant atheism all the time. Many times it's the spirituality that seems to flirt with Christianity but refuses to submit to the lordship of Jesus and its end game is actually to murder the ministry of the gospel in your life. So after Herod the Great died, um, you remember an angel came to Joseph because Mary and Joseph had a prophetic word, an angelic vision that said, you need to take Messiah to Egypt. So Jesus as a baby was brought to Egypt to avoid Herod murdering all the baby boys. But after Herod the Great died, the scripture tells us that they had another angelic vision and they brought Jesus back um, to Galilee. And what we learn there is that from history, after Herod the Great died, He had three sons, and his territory became split up um, between these sons. And who we encounter today, who we're going to read about in Scripture, is Herod Antipas, who was one of Herod the Great's sons and was ruler over Galilee during the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, we're going to encounter Herod Herod Antipas murdering John the Baptist. And and I want to give you just a little bit of context for Herod Antipas before we get to our text. He... He was not his father in that he was not a great leader. Okay, Herod the Great had all the leadership skills. Herod Antipas was just as wicked. He just didn't have the, the, the wit about him. You, you know, um, wise leaders who are filled with wickedness are dangerous. Dumb ones can be a problem too. Herod Antipas was, was a bit of a dumb one, but he had the same antichrist, lustful, covetous spirit operating within him. Remember this. I know I'm yakking, but I really want you guys to pay attention today. I'm getting ready to start throwing things, okay? Also joking. Luke 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees, this is Luke 13, verse 31. Some Pharisees came and said to him, Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Herod Antipas wants to kill Jesus. And Jesus says, go tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Calling Herod a fox was calling him sly, was calling him manipulative, was calling him a man of deception. In the Old Testament, foxes were images prophetically of things that steal and manipulate. He's not strong and honest and sincere. Herod's a manipulative self-centered leader, and Jesus calls him what he is. Now, we want to be wise, and we'll talk about this in a minute. We don't want to become politically obsessed. It's not wise for the church to become super into everything politic. But at the same time, we need to recognize that Jesus called the man a fox. And oftentimes in the church, we hear the church is never allowed to have anything to do with political means. And it's not like Jesus is advocating for policy here. He's just saying the man's wicked. When our Messiah calls a politician wicked, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're allowed to, too. So Jesus was brought before Herod, before his crucifixion. And the scripture tells us in Luke 23, verse 11 through 12, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. So Herod and his soldiers mocked Jesus. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. But before this day, there was an enmity between them. 
So Herod and Pilate became friends, and Herod used Jesus' crucifixion as an opportunity for political gain. After he mocked him, spit on him. So what we find, scripturally speaking, is that Herod very much operates in the spirit of Antichrist. Now, when we turn to, to Mark chapter 6, we'll, we'll read of how this spirit begins to flesh itself out further through Herod. But we could trace it from, from Herod the Great to Herod Antipas to Herod Agrippa, who would have been the nephew of Herod Antipas, who in Acts 12, you remember, was eaten by worms because he was giving a speech and the crowd said, behold, the voice of a God and not a man. And the scripture says that God struck him with worms and he was uh, brought to death in that very moment. The angel of the Lord struck him. So we find the Herodian legacy constantly manipulative, constantly using political tactics to gain power. We find the Herodian legacy birthed with evil and, and crafty tactics to try to gain um, a, a glory. And, and we see that that's an antichrist spirit operating through these politicians. And they have to continually, they mock Jesus. Herod will participate in the murder of Jesus. But we'll read today about what this spirit does to John the Baptist. And, spoiler alert, he takes his head. Mark 6, verse 17 through 29. Verse 17, for it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you, for, for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. He was interested and intrigued in the religious expression from John the Baptist, but he still had him in prison. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately and with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests did not want to break his word to her. He knows that he's a righteous man. He knows he's a holy man, but he doesn't want to break his oath to the girl. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came back, took his body, laid it in a tomb. Now, we find ourselves in what sometimes commentators call a Markin sandwich. Because you remember last week, we preached about, we talked about Mark. Uh, Mark's account of when the apostles were first sent um, to carry the, the gospel message on their own feet. Remember? We said that up until this point in Mark 6, in the early chapters of the gospel, they're watching Jesus heal the sick. They're watching Jesus cast out devils. They're watching Jesus care for the poor and the widow. And they're, they're apprenticing. They're watching. But in Mark 6, we opened with Jesus sending the apostles in pairs of two out for the first time to carry the message. And then Mark told us that Herod began to be agitated 
as he heard of the name of Jesus, and he began to think that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So Mark tells us the apostles are sent, they rile up Herod, and then he gives us this big, long explanation of how Herod killed the John the Baptist, and then he's going to launch us again into the results of the apostles' ministry. And so he sandwiches this story of John's death between the apostles being sent and ministers. There's There's a sandwich here. So in the middle of Mark telling us that the apostles will carry Christ's message, he shows us that there will be and there has been a political antichrist spirit that is frustrated with their ministry and will hold no bars to murder men and women who carry the gospel message. Those who carry the kingdom are in a battle against powers that hate God and love evil. These powers may be fascinated with religion. These powers may beautify the temple. These powers may look and talk like us and have Christianese, but these powers underneath hate the gospel message because it challenges their authority. We're being shown, Mark is showing us, that the church is in a spiritual war. So as the disciples are being released, he says, let me tell you about John's violent murder. So today, what we read was that Herod Antipas married his brother's wife. The family tree of the Herodians is so Alabama. (laughs) Forgive me if you're from Alabama. Um, Herodias, historians think, was not only Herod's brother's wife, he was both of their niece. She was both of their niece. And so Herod wants his brother's wife, who's his niece, and uses his political power to weasel his way into relationship. And we find this twisted mess of of a tree. And and the name Herod is everywhere, obviously. We have Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, and the girl's name's Herodias. Like that name's everywhere. So their family dynamic's super confusing. But we're told that this is a classic power grab. He is filled with covetousness, desiring a woman who does not belong to him, envy. There is a delineation between jealousy and envy in that jealousy is Jesus is jealous over his church because the church belongs to him. You should, in in the context of covenant, jealousy in marriage is a healthy thing, right? Like, no, I don't want you flirting with my wife. That's healthy. Covetousness is desiring what is not yours. And envy is pursuing with your power and whatever means necessary the, the, the avenue of gaining what belongs to someone else. So he allows his eyes to lust after this young woman long enough and envy long enough that he begins his power grab. And it's very clear from the text that Herodias, the niece, is also into this. She's, she's after the power too. And so what we find is this, for lack of better words, Jerry Springer-ish, <laughs> twisting and turning a family dynamic. And in the middle of it, we find John the Baptist, the prophet, continually telling Herod, you are wicked. You are wicked. Now, listen to me. As I prepared this sermon this week, I felt the conviction of the Spirit because I think that many times when we read stories like this, 
we automatically begin to read ourselves into the posture of John the Baptist. And we start to talk about first, we need to be more John the Baptist-like, willing to call sin, sin. And that's true, and that's actually a good application that we'll get to. But I felt the Spirit just nudging me to suggest that there might be some of us in the church today who are a little more like Herod than we are John the Baptist. And the first question to ask is, is there a Herodian antichrist thing taking place in my life? Is there something in me that likes religion, that's interested in prophecy, that enjoys church, but is so unwilling to submit to the conviction of the Spirit that I'm willing to condemn, curse, fuss at anyone who ever touches my sin? Some of us want to be affirmed in church, and you begin to totally flesh out any time a a pastor or an elder begins to talk about sexual sin, you freak out and call it judgmental. But I think if you're honest with yourself, and today is just a day of self-examination. I don't want you thinking about your spouse, okay? I want you, I want you thinking about you this morning. This is a good day just to self-examine. Are there things in me that love to hear John the Baptist preach just as long as he doesn't talk about me? Are there things in me that love good preaching, hard preaching? Just don't put your finger on my selfishness. Just don't put your finger on my financial sin. Just don't put your finger on my sexual sin. Or else, you're just another judgmental prophet. Church, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna move forward at some point in your soul, in the place of your soul, you've gotta bow to Jesus. And what happens in our souls is we can, we have contention. We contend oftentimes with the work of the Spirit because we want what we want. And some of us want our sexual sin more than we want to live in submission to Jesus' Lordship. And, and let me tell you what's gonna happen. Listen to me. Listen to me. The, 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 the Puritans used to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The voice of the prophet, the voice of the spirit that rises up and challenges your sin. If you resist it long enough, your your sinful posture will actually murder and silence the voice of the spirit and conviction in your life. You'll start to totally be dumb to anything that challenges you. There, uh, People who used to talk in discipleship about this idea of, of the flesh and the spirit waging against each other. And we used to say things like, what you feed leads. So you feed your spirit through reading the scripture, through prayer. You feed your spirit through submission to God's word. But if you're constantly feeding your flesh, living in fulfillment of your flesh's desires, your flesh goes strong, your spirit grows weak, and you start to become dumb to what's happening in the spirit realm. And your life is all about your next fix. How can you have sexual pleasure or how can you have financial gain or how can you become the most egotistical proud person on the block and it's like man that's not christianity you cannot cut off john's john's head and say oh but i beautified the temple you hear me you cannot murder the voice of the prophet and say but i gave money to the church You can't justify your religion through these acts of good works, which are good and are beautiful, while you ignore the voice of the Spirit calling you to obey Jesus in the deep matters of your soul. So Mark tells us that John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. 
Now, the language that Mark uses here is really fascinating because what it implies, R.T. France tells us, a commentator, what it implies is John the Baptist had been telling, meaning more than once, and the language implies face-to-face. So I don't know if Herod's coming to hear John preach. The scripture tells us that Herod likes John's preaching. And when Herod shows up to the meeting, John to his face says, Herod, that's sin. And John just keeps confronting him over and over. That's wickedness, Herod. And sometimes we like to think of ourselves as being above the law, being higher than the law. But Leviticus says, the scripture teaches over and over that you can't have your brother's wife. That's plain wickedness. But is Herod viewing himself as being above the law because he's king? And are some of us using our adoption into the family of God as justification to spit on God? Like, I know God loves me so I can do whatever I want. Herod's in compromise. Again, looks religious, but in compromise. And he's silencing the voice of the Spirit. And John the Baptist keeps saying it. And there's, listen to me, the conviction voice, the convicting voice of the Spirit is nagging. The Spirit will keep saying it. And you'll hear me say the same thing in my sermon every week. Not always because I repeat myself. That's Brad, okay? I haven't hit that age yet where I repeat myself. That's, that's Brad. It's coming, I know. Are, are you resisting the conviction of the Spirit? Self-examination again. Not, not looking at anybody else. You, in your soul, are you resisting the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit? So John keeps nagging Herod. You can't have her. You can't have her. That's wicked. That's evil. You can't pretend to be a friend of God's people and live in this wickedness. You can't have her. And let me, let me yak. I'm going to run out of time today, but again, that's totally someone else's fault. I'll pick that person later. Um, cause I'm never wrong, obviously. <laughs> um, The idea here in the nagging, John the Baptist just keeps saying, you can't have her. You can't have her. I've heard preachers say that if John the Baptist wouldn't have got caught up in politics, then he would have been able to continue to live and experience Jesus's ministry of grace. I want you to know that that is the most unfounded biblical logic I've ever heard in my life. I don't know of a prophet who didn't preach to kings, right? Jesus calls John the greatest prophet. Like you think Elijah was like, you know what, Jezebel? Queen, I don't do politics. No, life just calls a spade a spade. And you work through Isaiah, you work through Jeremiah. They, they are speaking to political figures and because the gospel message calls for repentance from top to down, top, down, top. It calls for the whole to come to repentance. And so many people will say things like, John the Baptist, if he wouldn't become political, he would have lived on. And, and that's so silly, so silly. And, and then the logic goes that pastors cannot be political. That as a pastor, Caleb, you're never allowed to talk about anything that culture deems as political. And I just want to say, I'm allowed to talk about whatever the Bible tells me I can talk about. Okay, I, you guys know I'm not highly fascinated with politics. I think it's silly. But, but it's, it's not like John saying, you know what, Herod, your financial policy is, is not quite working out the way that I think. I don't like your economics, Herod. John's saying, you're wicked. And in the same sense, the church doesn't want to become so obsessed with every little facet of politics. 
But when there's morality issues, the church has to speak to those morality issues with graciousness, with, with honesty, but with boldness. Okay, and so I'm talking about sexuality. Like, no, what the scripture teaches, man and woman for life, period. That means divorce outside of adultery, we're, we're against. That means, that means we, we, are, we are advocating for healthy, lifelong marriages between man and woman, period. Not because we care about politics, but because it's what the Bible teaches. And, and that, has to, that has to kind of settle into our views about abortion, our views. Again, if you've had an abortion, there's grace. God, God loves you. But, but the Bible teaches that it's, that it's evil and we need to repent of it. And that's not political. You could say Caleb's a political preacher. That's just Bible, dude. It's just Bible. And, and, the, and the prophet, the people of God, under the conviction of the Spirit, need to not run away from that, that, that condemning voice that says, you've got to shut up. You've got to shut up. Let me just say, there are times when you need to shut up. Okay? There are times when we become way too fascinated with what's happening in pop culture. There are times when we talk more than we should. But when we step into an arena and we just say, God calls this evil and we speak it plainly we are not operating in a political spirit we're operating in a prophetic spirit and the church needs to embrace the prophetic spirit and not allow the spirit of herod to chop off our heads so herod has john arrested what's his crime is it theft is it immorality what's john's crime his crime is offending the antichrist spirit josephus the first century historian said that in his antiquities he said that, that Herod decided to strike first and to rid John the Baptist in case there was an uprising. But notice again, church, that the scripture says that, that Herod was, a, was kind of fascinated with John the Baptist. He was perplexed by him. John the Baptist was so rare. It was so obscure to see a man fully devoted to God, not devoted to his own wealth, not devoted to his own gain, not devoted to his own platform, but to see a man just devoted to God, fasting and praying and preaching holiness. John the Baptist had murdered in his soul anything that would oppose God. And that murdering in his soul is actually what gave him anointing and platform to stand and rebuke and inherit. But when the church hasn't first been purged and sanctified, we have no authority to step up and call a spade a spade. You have no authority to speak to these issues in the spirit realm until you're submitted to Jesus fully. And what perplexes Herod about John the Baptist is that man submitted. That man's strange. You're called to be a strange people. So Herod throws a party. They're getting a little tipsy, we would say. And it seems from the scripture that it was all men in the room. And then he brings in his now stepdaughter slash niece to dance. That's gross. And we can just assume that this is somewhat sexual and the men are pleased with her dancing and drunk. And he says to her, ask me whatever you wish and you can have it. And her mom, who's very Jezebel ish says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And so Herod who likes John the Baptist knows he's a righteous man. is kind of fascinated with him now has an opportunity to say either I am going to honor the fact that that man is not guilty or I'm going to preserve face, save face. And Herod decides to save his face and kill the prophet because what's king in his heart is not God. What's king in his heart is his own glory. 
and and again, I don't know how else to say this, but but in the church in the West in particular, we we want glory more than we want God. And Jesus says, How can you how can you how can you seek the glory of man first to the Pharisees? You seek glory from one another, not glory from God. And and we're so obsessed with our own egos and having our own wants and desires, never willing to crucify our flesh, that we have no authority. Because we have no holiness, our message is weak, we've been crippled and backed into a corner where we're told that anything you say that ever offends us must be political and off limits. All you're allowed to do is encourage, and I don't know if you've read the Bible lately, but like it has a lot to say about your life. When we fast forward now to think about the Mark and Sandwich, what we're finding is, again, that this spirit of Antichrist is being aggravated by the apostles now carrying the gospel. So John the Baptist, as Mark is writing, has been dead, maybe for years, and Herod now begins to say, I think that Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. So years later, Herod's still losing sleep over this. Because his conscience knows what went down. I want to ask you today, church, to honor your conscience. If you know that you're wrong, I don't know, maybe repent. Like, there are days where I know I'm wrong. And and all I can do is come to the altar again, confess my sin, submit my heart to Jesus, and choose to honor God. But so many of us, we, our consciousness becomes seared. We're resisting, we're resisting, we're resisting. And what you're resisting is the purging of the Spirit. What you're resisting is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that intends to cleanse you of an antichrist-like spirit and lead you to gospel power. But you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't live just to fulfill your own sexual desires and carry the gospel to the four corners of the earth. You can't live for money because you want to be as wealthy as you possibly can and as selfish as you possibly can and, like, care for the poor. Are you submitted? Is, is, are you going to have the head of John the Baptist or the head of Herod? That's your options. Somebody's going to die. And, church, I'm, I'm worried that in the West what's happened is the, is the big C church just is, is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker lethargic, apathetic, tired. So what does this text lead us to chew on? Where does this lead us to land? Well, one, again, we've got to deal with our own sin. A judgment has to begin in the house of God. So today as we get ready to altar, Seth, you can go ahead and come. And today as we get ready to move into the altar, I want to ask you first to be open to allow the Spirit to bring conviction to your heart? Are you even open to the Spirit's conviction anymore? Have you been so baptized in Western Christianity that all you think that should happen on Sunday morning is you should leave here with a big smile on your face and feeling better about yourself? Have you so been baptized in Western ideologies that you think church is about self-help? Sometimes church is about self-mortification, death. Are you even open to the conviction of the Spirit? And for some of us this morning, all I'm going to ask of you to do is to come open your hands at the altar and say, Spirit, have your way with me. Cleanse me. Purge me.
some of us, we need to lean into a John the Baptist thing where we recognize that all of our Christianity is not just about loving people into the kingdom. There's a time to love people into the kingdom and we want to be loving always. But hear me say this. I need you to listen to me for three minutes. A sinless gospel is a graceless gospel. If the church never talks about sinless sin, holiness, and the law, then our nation has no need for atonement. You see that devil trying to get me? <laughs> Devil's a liar. Um, if we embrace the posture that culture wants us to embrace that says, hey, church is really about encouraging and church is really about everyone feeling better about themselves and be as offended as you can be all the time. And if the pastor ever steps on your toes, make sure you send him an email and chew him out. If that's what we allow church to become, then our, our nation has no need for atonement because she's unwilling to acknowledge that she's sinful. The gospel declares humanity wicked, you and me included. And the gospel presents to us atonement by, by Jesus' blood and forgiveness in that blood but I'm telling you, our nation has no need for atonement because the church won't preach on sin. And sometimes the church doesn't want to preach on sin because the church doesn't want to first deal with hers. You hear what I'm saying there? We've got to be willing to deal with our sin and then preach on ours, ours, repent of our sin, confess our sin, and then preach on the sin of our culture. And then as we preach on the sin of the culture, then we can present the need for grace and the, the gospel of love and kindness of the Father to wash us. But if what we're saying to our society is, hey, you're really perfect just as you are. Hey, if you want to sleep, sister, no big deal, bud. Then there's no need for repentance and grace. We've become a gospelist church because we're, we're so into patting each other on the butt and, and loving each other in our sin and never being willing to look in the mirror and say, God, what in my life brings you displeasure? And what is murdering the voice of the spirit in my life? What is cutting off the head of the prophet in my life? You guys hear what I'm saying at all? Am I connecting at all? Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet and altar team, if you get in place. Let's just start there, church. If you just at all sense the conviction of the spirit this morning, if anything in you just says, God, I want to, I want to be open to your correction. I want to be open to repentance. I want you to go ahead and come to the altar. I want you to go ahead and make your way down, open your hands, and let's just say to the Spirit again, Lord, I will be a person that embraces your sifting. I will be a person that embraces repentance and faith. We have got to be a church on our knees before we're a church preaching from a platform. Come on, somebody, hit your knees afresh today and invite the voice of the Spirit.